Guys, I just wanted to say thank you all so much for coming out tonight, making the extra time to come out and be part of this. I uh, appreciate very much, um, you know, your interest and your participation. Um, many of you who are sitting in this room sent in questions to, uh, for us to consider. Um, many other people sent them in as well. Um, I just wanted to share a little bit about the, the why behind this uh, event tonight. You know, when we started putting together the Asking for a Friend sermon series, you know, this is the fourth year that we've done this. Um, in the previous years, we've tackled tough questions. Uh, and every year, there have been people who, after those sermons were delivered, they would come and they would have follow-up questions and different things that they would want to discuss. And so this year, um, we said, Jesse had the idea of putting together a panel and just kind of addressing uh, some Q&A as follow-up from the sermons. So, um, we know, we just really hope that tonight you feel like you had an opportunity the best we could to hear the questions that were on your mind. We hope that you can um, be helped uh, by the answers that we provide. Um, and that's what we wanted to do. We wanted to take another step to try to do our best to serve uh, the body here that inevitably has questions after um, sensitive subject matter being addressed on Sunday morning. So thank you guys for coming out and being here this evening. Um, in just a minute, we're going to pray, but before we do that, uh, Jesse's going to take us through um, some of the kind of housekeeping details. Jesse is going to be moderating um, this whole discussion. He'll be, he'll be posing the questions to us. If you don't know Jesse, he's the chairman of our deacon body, um, and so Jesse's going to be introducing these questions. We're going to be answering them. Um, but Jesse has some housekeeping things to take us through before we get started. So go ahead, Jesse. Thanks, Jesse. Um, just going to give you the quick order of the meeting for the evening uh, tonight. We're going to go by uh, each sermon. So you're going to kind of see that as categories. The questions will be up on the, um, I will read them, but they'll also be on the screen. And um, so we're only going to be obviously answering questions from the sermons um, for the last few weeks. And uh, we're going to, we, there's a lot. So we will not, I'm not going to tell you, we're not going to get into all of them. But as you potentially can, I'm going to be the timekeeper. So I'm going to cut some of these guys off to get them rolling. Um, so I apologize in advance for that. Um, you know, and, but we do want to tell you guys, you know, these, these brothers have, have, are up here because they care about you guys. Um, they want to get um, this information out. And so if there's something that was not addressed or you want to address uh, further in length, Please call the office and, and set up a meeting. Um, these brothers, any of these brothers up here would love to talk to you about anything that's further. So, um, and also the elders are also going to put together a resource doc and uh, post something, um, some more of the recommended resources. So um, uh, right now I'm gonna turn it over to Harry and ask him to open the evening in prayer. So could we all bow our heads. Father, we thank you today that we could be together uh, to explore your word, to help us understand how to apply it to our lives. Father, we pray that you would give us humility in our questions, that you would give us clear clarity in our understanding, and that, Father, that at the end of the night, that there would be a unity among us that uh, we've not experienced before. In thy name we pray. Amen. Scott, can you share, just open us up real quick with a, um, a little bit of a, a word just to start us off before we get into the questions. Yeah, thank you, Jesse. Uh, one of the things uh, in my classroom uh, that I like to do when we're talking about something in theology that fellow Christians debate and discuss is to set a, a, a meta 
discussion for you to help you. Jason actually did part of that this morning, and if you didn't hear him, he talked about something we refer to as theological triage. Okay, So let me just use the, the board up here because it's just great. Um, so first, in theological triage, when you ask yourself the question you're asking okay, about theology, as Jason said, we have what we call primary doctrines. Uh, those are doctrines I like to define as necessary to proclaim or defend the gospel. Okay? They are primary. Uh, things like, is Jesus God? Things like, are we saved by works? Those kinds of questions that are necessary to proclaim or defend, the, we call those primary. Um, then you have secondary doctrines, which are called secondary doctrines. Now, that's, this is advanced theology, okay? But these are questions, as Jason said, they're not denials of the gospel, but they're important enough to justify divisions denominationally, okay? Easy example of that is mode of baptism and do you baptize babies or not, okay? That, that's a denominational discussion, doesn't deny the gospel. And then the third one is what we call tertiary. Now, that's a great word, okay? But it's less important, I think. But those, those are doctrines that are important to theology, but they're not important enough to justify divisions, okay? So that's always important to know when you're discussing a doctrine or a theological issue or application of theology, know what you're discussing, Okay. And the other way I like to put it that helps in this meta form is to understand that the Bible, um, that there are different categories of questions we put to the Bible. Okay, let me say it again. When we ask questions of the Bible, which we are doing in this series, what does the Bible say about voting? What does the Bible say about same-sex? What does the Bible say about women in ministry? We are asking the Bible what it has to say. God, right, through the Bible. Well, there are certain questions that we ask of the Bible. I call these category one. This is going to be real complicated, okay? The first one is category one. And that's where the Bible gives crystal clear answers to the question. Maybe that's a way to put it. Crystal clear. And it, nobody, if you believe the Bible, nobody debates it. For example... Is it okay to have a sexual relationship outside of a one-man, one-woman marriage? Okay? The Bible is clear. No. Okay? So when we talk about that question, it's not an issue of what does the Bible say? We don't know. It's an issue of will. Okay? So that's one category. Then you have what I call category, I know, class, two. Okay? That's category two. And those are tangential questions, really, that the Bible doesn't address. For example, this morning, I had a headache. Do I take Advil or Tylenol? I didn't go to my Bible to figure out the answer. It doesn't refer to that. Okay? Those, and there are lots of questions we deal with in life the Bible doesn't address. Politically, um, the first one would be does the government have a responsibility to punish murderers? The Bible says, yes. The second one, 
Does the Bible have anything to say about the Electoral College? Now, now, Glenn might disagree a little bit, but really, no, okay? So, see the difference? And then, the third category is category three. Category three, those are the ones that, um, how do I say this? Uh, these are matters of wisdom. And actually, what I say, how I define category three is questions where Bible-believing Christians come up with different answers, okay? And there are a lot of those, by the way. We're not talking about people who don't believe the Bible now. We're talking about people who trust the Bible, believe it's God's word, and they want to live their life based on it. So let me give you an example, okay? I use it with college students because it's kind of, should a young married couple, Christian couple, use birth control? Ooh, I always get their attention when I use that one. But you know what? When I was married, I won't get too far, back in the 80s, not a question. That was the Catholics that debated that. Good Baptist boys and girls, sure, you use birth control, right? But do you realize in the late 90s and 2000s, there were a lot of Christians who started publishing articles that said it's wrong to use birth control. And I would take for my class, I'd show them an article using the Bible that says it's wrong. And then I'd show another article using the Bible that says it's okay. Both using the Bible, right? Those are wisdom questions. So again, when you ask yourself, what does the Bible have to say? Know what you're asking. Is it one, two, or three? And with that, I'll sit down. <laughs> Thank you, Scott. Um, yeah, Jason. So I'd like to just jump right in here right away uh, and ask Scott, since you just explained our little uh, primary, secondary, tertiary, category one, two, three, we had a couple people who um, emailed questions and they said, hey, could you take our three sermons and could you kind of show us how they fit in your grid there? Yeah. Sermon by sermon, can you tell us where they fit? Well, I would say different parts of the sermons fit different places. I'll start with today, because Jason already said, should a woman um, be a pastor, Jason put in the secondary category. It's not about the gospel, okay? You're not a heretic, but it's enough of a disagreement to determine where you might worship in your church and take your family, okay? So that, that's that one. Um, let me, I'm going to go with mine. Same-sex attraction. Um, I think the answer about marriage and what it is is a primary one. Why? Because the Bible uses marriage as an example of Christ in the church. Okay? And I think Paul and then Revelation, marriage supper of the Lamb, it's using that imagery in such a central way to the gospel that that question is here. Okay? Now, how do you deal with people and how, you know, who are struggling? That's, those are other issues. Okay, we'll talk about that. Those are wisdom. Glenn, you want to say anything about yours? <laughs> <laughs> Certainly, there's a much greater emphasis on categories two and three. Yeah. Uh, you, you could make a case for one in places, but it really it comes down to two and three beyond Genesis 1 through 12 in category one. And within each of our sermons, there are kind of subtopics or mm -hmm. uh, related questions that come up, and that's when we have to start to categorize 
each of those questions. Is this a category one question within that subject matter, a category two question within that subject matter? So, um, you know, I know it's, it's at least a helpful way to think through uh, our grade. Is our topic primary, secondary, tertiary? Is the question we're asking within our topic a level one, level two, or level three? And so maybe that's just something that can give some framework to help people think it through. Back to you, Jeff. No, thank you. It's great. So um, I guess we're going to jump right into the, to the questions here. Uh, obviously, we're going to start with uh, the first one that we heard, uh, what, three weeks ago? Um, Glens. So the question, this category that we're, we'll be tackling in these, in these questions will be um, how to think biblically about voting. Um, and the first question is, uh, that came in is, how do you apply the general principles Glenn discussed to particular issues, such as, is there any broad principles for guidance about how to think about, say, economics in that way, or Social Security, or redistricting, or individual freedom being limited by the government? Or are these things ones that should be handled differently? So Glenn, we'll start with you first. Absolutely. First, I'd like to thank the Alder Board for inviting me to give me the opportunity to preach on this topic. Certainly not an easy one, and while I've spent much of my life doing it, and I uh, do so with fear and trembling, really, because it's just it's a topic with a lot of landmines. And so thank you so much for your encouragement post-sermon uh, and for your questions that have been really very thought-provoking for me. So really appreciate the, the church. I would go back to what I said in the sermon in terms of the application of the general principles using the framework of 1 Kings 12. And I laid out a fairly simple binary of good and bad, Solomon versus Rehoboam in terms of counsel, but it does give us an opportunity to think through public policy in the sense that it's been close to 3,000 years since Rehoboam's ascension. And we can look at the world and we can see what's worked, what's not worked, what's somewhere in the middle. And so that gives us a great deal of application just, just on what's happened. But in terms of uh, the particular issues raised, say economics, I would point to the book of Proverbs, uh, the Psalms in particular. It's hard to pick out one or two verses here or there, but certainly there are grander principles like uh, avoiding indebtedness, just as wisdom to go to category three of Scott's um, framework. And so there are issues like that, especially in economics, that just aren't wise for an individual or a country to hold. And so on a case like that, a First Kings 12 good versus bad uh, dichotomy is very useful. We, we typically want to be uh, avoid being the, the slave to the lender, for example. When it comes to something like Social Security, a former colleague of mine once said, uh, children are your biblical um, Social Security, and uh, I think in this day and age, uh, we have to get to the United States, you know, the creation of Social Security in the 1930s. It, it's different, and so it fits very nicely with the next question, I think. But, um, you know, redistributing, individual freedom is an interesting one because uh, the Bible is written at a time of empire. It's, it's not a Jeffersonian democracy in either the Old or New Testaments, and so Individual freedoms are wonderful that we get to enjoy this day and age, but the, the Bible is not written in that context. And so I, I simply say take that as a blessing in terms of what we have here and now. Uh, praise God for it, 
uh, but don't use it as an idol either. Thank you. Any, anything to add? Good, good, good. Okay, well, thank you for that. I'm going to go on to the next question. Um, is there such a thing as an amoral political issue, um, one that doesn't have any biblical support for or against? I hear people using scripture out of context all the time to support political positions, but are there issues that God is simply neutral on? where he cares about people's hearts and intentions rather than the policies they think enact their intentions? It's a great question. I'd um, go back to my colleague, Professor Dixon, because he already raised the Electoral College as, as an example. It's something that's useful. It's got a historical um, implementation in our country, but at the same time, it's, it's amoral. I, I tried uh, bending scripture to make a point to him earlier today in our meeting about you know, maybe you could make a case for federalism based on Israel's 12 tribes, and then you can get to a biblical case for the Electoral College, but you know, I'm just bending scripture in all of that, and so uh, in, in a case like that, it is immoral. The other one I jumped to is taxes, because uh, again, there are boundaries here, but if we think of uh, just rendering unto Caesar what is Caesar's, uh, provided that there are sensible boundaries where you're not getting into Rehoboam's territory of exchanging scorpion or whips for scorpions, uh, there, there's an expectation that taxation is at least at some level necessary for the running of the government. As Jason mentioned in his sermon today, which we don't have, didn't have taxes, but it's just a, it's a, an output of a functioning government, and in our case, we get to elect our leaders who then set that policy. So. Uh, something along those lines. To make it real practical, on May the 2nd, there is on the ballot a uh, school board, whether you're in the city of Beaver Creek or the township, and something like that is based on conscience and taxation and the performance of the schools and things of that nature, and I would venture to say that that's amoral as well. Uh, you, can, you can vote either way on it, but be informed, look at the pros and cons, uh, etc. Anything else to add, guys? Okay. Well said, Glenn. Um, what advice uh, do you have that would help de-escalate tensions around political issues within a family or other close relationships? How can I talk myself out of being angry at another Christian for their position that I think misrepresents Christians and is counter to biblical principles? It's another wonderful question. On this one, I am very, very biased based on my Britishness and my, and my upbringing. I was born and raised in the United Kingdom, and I, and I confront the question, I think, with a lot more trepidation than many in the United States. And the reason being is I was born and raised in a time called the Troubles in the United Kingdom. Uh, and it lasted from 1968 through 1998, and it was very much... Uh, in part, well, it was very much based on power, but a secondary component of it was Protestant versus Catholic, Unionist versus Republican divide. And what it ended up doing in the country as an output is it turned a lot of people off against Christianity because they looked at the church arguing with one another with such ferocity to the point where it led to assassination attempts, widespread terrorism and things of that nature and say, so I say, it's not unimportant, our politics. I've, I've already made the case in a sermon that it's very 
important, but at the same time, don't lose the grace, don't lose a relationship over it, and realize that your society could devolve the way it did in the one that I grew up. And the Christian population in the United Kingdom is still very vibrant, but it's described as a post-Christian society. And, and I really fear that if there's an anger that continues to permeate in the United States, that it can go in that direction. And so I, I, I realize that I have a bias coming from the United Kingdom. It's not that way in the United States yet. It may never go there. It's important to stand upon the Word of God as it comes into the public square, but do so delicately is, is the warning I'll put out. Elders, any other advice? Well, I just uh, I was just listening to a podcast yesterday where the Christian talking about politics in America right now, he was talking as a hypothetical, you know, there, there is a far right perspective right now, for example, against on the transgender, uh, what's the word, transgender issue. issue, and people, and feeling that that is being pushed upon them. I'm not talking about Christian, I'm just talking about a far right, okay? And he said, Suppose that that far right got power, and they use that power to persecute transgender people out of anger. Would the church at that point not be responsible to actually be a safe place for this persecuted minority, even though you disagreed with their ideology? Could you see that happening? Would that not be what the church is about? And I think that's an example of what Glenn is talking about. It's not happening, but what if it did? And it could. And one final point to use your example of Rwanda of 1994. It was a genocide, lasted 100 days. 800,000 people were hacked to death by machetes. Christians killed Christians based on their ethnic background. And that is an extreme example, but it's one that happened not that long ago, and that's a, that's a danger. Yeah, and I would just add to this on maybe a less intense level. <laughs> is the, the, the question is just how do I help de-escalate tensions around political issues with family or other close relationships? Like, this is very simple, but the COVID thing was very politically divisive. Uh, I had family members that felt differently than me about this. You know, there just kind of came a time for me where I just had to say, you know, I have to choose. What's more important to me? this political issue and being right about it or maintaining the relationship with my family member. Family member is more important. So I'm not gonna die on that hill over an issue that I am not willing to lose a relationship over. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So, you know, is that ad advice? I, I don't know if that's advice. I guess my advice would be don't, don't die on a hill or cause a division with a family member or close relationship over an issue that's not worth doing that over. Um, how can I talk myself out of being angry at another Christian for their position that I think misrepresents Christians? You know, I think we need to remember basic biblical principles. You know, Proverbs 19 says that it is good for us to overlook an offense. Like if our family offends us or other Christians, or, you know, they offend us, it, the wisdom principle is that it's good for us to overlook that offense. We don't always have to take up every issue. Um, you know, I think that the other thing is just to remember that as simple as this is, you know, Jesus hung on the cross and said, Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. 
So when we see somebody who may be in error or somebody who is in, you know, in sin, the heart of Jesus looks at people who are killing him and says, you know, I want, their, I want forgiveness for them. And to me, that's helpful to remember when we are in the midst of being offended, people hurting us and those types of things, even if they're doing it in a, a severe manner that's counter to biblical principles. So I don't know if that's helpful to anybody. That's, that's my two thoughts, my two cents. Oh, thank you. Harry, Jeff, anybody? Yep. So my brother is, but I would say, on the opposite end of the political spectrum from, from where I sit. Um, his, even though raised in the same home as a, with a pastor, a pastor as a father, um, he no longer, you know, follows good godly principles. And yet we had to come to a point where, as Jason said, you know, am I going to have a relationship with my brother or am I not? Uh, there may be some things that we're just not going to talk about. But he knows where I stand. I know where he stands. Um, and you do a lot of praying. You trust the Holy Spirit to open some doors. And when you have opportunities in a loving way, uh, because there's nothing worse that we as Christians can do than to be harsh when it comes to these even godly principles that we know are the truth, right? You know, Scott talked about this during his sermon was about grace and truth. You don't, right? The truth is what you're going to stand on. You're not going to be flexible with your truth, but you have to do things with grace and love, not with harshness. Good, all right, on to the next. Um, what impact should a political candidate's character, or lack thereof, have on your vote, even if the most of the political party's platform aligns somewhat biblically? We struggled very much with this in the last two presidential elections. Glenn? I have not punted yet on all of these difficult questions, but I, I do want to hand off the mic to the dialogue between Scott Dixon and Jason Wing, because uh, in all sincerity, I think it'd be useful for the church body to hear. Very much so. Yeah. You go first. Uh, yeah. Uh, he, he, he called it. Uh, just, I'm respecting yeah. my elder. Yeah. Oh, thank okay. you. That was a shot. Was that done out of love? Yes. Okay. Now, this, what we wanted to do is just show Jason and I have some disagreements in this question. Uh, my, my heart told me, has told me, uh, I will not vote for a party whose platform is anti-Bible, right? But I will also not vote for a person whose character I cannot, is just can't support. <laughs> I'll say it that way. So I chose not to vote for either one. And I'm very comfortable in that position. Okay? So that's my position. So <laughs> I, uh, Scott keeps saying we're on a different page. We're, I don't think we're that far <laughs> off. So here's, here's my thing. I, I have freedom in my conscience to vote for a quote-unquote bad candidate. All right? So that, that's fine with me because whenever we're voting... I mean, we're always voting for sinners. And that's what we wrote in our, in our um, paper on voting that in one sense, we're always voting for a less than perfect candidate. So, you know, I can vote for a, a bad candidate um, because, you know, I could be confident that their party is still going to generally do better at upholding 
what I believe are good and right things uh, than the other party would do. So at the same time, as much as I feel free to do that, you don't feel free to do that, right? So I am happy to give people the freedom of conscience to say, vote third party. Don't vote at all. You know, I, I wouldn't encourage you to not vote at all. I think we have a wonderful gift and a privilege to vote in our country that many other countries don't have. I generally would never recommend that, but if your conscience is bound and you can't vote, I would say maybe the Lord will make your conscience free at some time to do that, but if not, I'm not going to condemn you for going against it. Anybody else want to add to what Jason and Scott said? I don't believe in punting long term, so I'll, I'll make a statement, <laughs> but I, I, I fall close to Jason is, is what I'll say on it, and that's with all due respect, and I see my colleague's position, absolutely. All right, well, on to the next. Um, could you please clarify why Genesis 1 through 12, chapters 1 through 12, is our authority on modern-day voting? It seemed as, is, as if uh, it was suggested that because our other Christian world leaders agree that we should also agree. That seems problematic to be using humans as a guide for what, for what parts of the Bible to use for specific application. Uh, Glenn, I'm going to throw that one back to you. I really like this question because I wrestled with big parts of both of it, both sections of the question ahead of the, the sermon. And I think one of the keys in Genesis 1 through 12 is it sets the foundation for family, the church, and government before really the creation of, of Israel as a nation that would exist, have a government, etc. And so uh, it sets a foundational position on which to move forward. And uh, as such, it's a clear case of what's in the Bible and prescribes towards government. The challenge of the question, and I, and I asked myself it before the sermon, is it, it's phrased yeah, in a negative as such, you know, what about the rest of Scripture? I brought it up during the sermon. There's you know, Genesis 13 through 50, and then there's Exodus and everything else. But the challenge then is saying, well, if you flip it around to say the positive, what's in Scripture that's a clear dictum from God to te that tells us what to do in our politics? It's a really hard question to answer. And so going back to Genesis 1 through 12 sets the foundation, and it's uh, a clear way forward. There's a lot else that's in there, and uh, certainly I'll, I think I can get into candidates and human beings on the, on the next question if there's time. Okay. Uh, yeah, I think Glenn did a great job answering that one. That reflects the heart of the elders. Genesis 1 through 12 gives us uh, biblical principles that were in existence before the nation of Israel came about, before uh, there was the law of Moses, all of that. So I think that that's foundational. Uh, I do want to reiterate that what Glenn said in his sermon, which was that other issues are also important. It's just we have to look at our issues and say, what are most important? And any of us have to look at issues and prioritize them. I would suggest that we prioritize Genesis, the issues addressed in Genesis 1 through 12. That's good. I'm going to jump to the next one just for time. Uh, could you please clarify which candidates, leaders, or platforms uh, reflect and uphold God's design for government. Um, in my experience, I have found extremely few candidates and leaders and zero platforms that uh, even attempt to pursue this goal. 
It's a challenging question. I think in the United States, we're very blessed because there's been a long-standing Christian population, and there's candidates at the local, state, and federal level. And so sometimes you have to dig a bit. Sometimes you have to look at different jurisdictions. But there have been many, many at the local and the state levels in particular. Uh, I would float as U.S. Senators, Tim Scott and James Lankford, as, as very good examples that tried to put this in, but it's not to say it's easy because, again, everyone is flawed, every single candidate. I want to raise a Canadian leader, Stockwell Day, that ran politically and took, the, took a break on the Sabbath. He wouldn't campaign on the Sabbath. It was lambasted by the media, many on the opposite side of the political spectrum, but he took a stance. I'll raise another candidate, Tim Farron. He was the leader of the Liberal Democratic Party in the United Kingdom for the middle point of the last decade. And what he did is he ran on Genesis 1 through 12, despite the fact that most of his party disagreed with him. He became the leader, and at that time, his Liberal Democratic Party under his leadership was probably the most pro-Genesis 1 through 12 major political party uh, another recent candidate, Ash Regan, ran for the leadership of the Scottish National Party in Scotland, and she did so largely on a Genesis 1 through 12 basis, despite the fact that most of her party does not believe that. And so there are all kinds of nuances and sometimes Christian leaders from unexpected uh, layers that come up, but it really is looking at that local, state, federal opportunity and looking at candidates and where the candidates fail, it's where I made a big deal about platforms. Anything else to add, brothers? All right, I'm going to jump to the last question in this category. Um, what should we do politically, besides voting, as Christians in the local community? Obviously, the answer is implied that we should sense the answer is implied that we should since Glenn is a city council member, and all of us can't be city count, city or school council members. So I'm looking for specific ways within the Beaver Creek area that we can connect with fellow believers to persuade the local government. The first way is to look inwards at some of the wonderful ministries we have here at UBC on Genesis 1 through 12 issues. They do a lot of excellent work in the Miami Valley area. The second is, in this day and age, there are many easy access points. Every city council um, meeting is open to the public. It's on YouTube. There's much, much more transparency than previous decades because of the technology. And so there's every opportunity to do so. Uh, you can reach out. Council at beavercreekohio.gov is, is, a, is a good access point to that. And the city is always looking for people to serve on boards and commissions. Uh, you don't have to run for an office per se, but you can do some of these things. The other part of this question I really like is there is a bit of a gap here as well in terms of what can be done locally or at the state level. There are some excellent organizations, uh, think tanks at the state level, but not necessarily locally. And so uh, I think we can say things like that. Um, Jason, if I mention CCV, is that, should I? Yeah, in, in Columbus, we have a, a really excellent uh, think tank research organization that advocates on the part of Christian positions. Uh, the Center for Christian Virtue is that, is it? And uh, while not perfect because it's run by imperfect human beings, 
It does a lot in terms of public policy at the state and local level here in Ohio, but because of its excellence, a lot of states, Christians in other states, have looked to it as well. So the Center for Christian Virtue is, is a very good one. Anything else to add, guys? Jeff? I just want to add one thing so people understand. This is more... So understanding that the church, if you ask us to come out and tell you who you need to vote for, we're not going to do that. Um, and there's, there's many reasons, uh, but you do need to understand from a legal perspective that we are a 501c. And churches that stand up and point to different political parties and political candidates, thank you, candidates, right, to political candidates, they can lose their 501c status. It doesn't mean we're not going to stand on the truth, but it also means that, right, this, this, there's a reason. When we, wrote, when we sat down and we wrote that paper on voting, we took time. It took a lot of time. It took a lot of editing. And then the editing went back and forth. So there was a lot of thought put into that because we wanted to guide you in the correct way, right? And what does God's Word say about it? But in the end, it's about taking the time to diving into the, into the subjects. It's getting online and looking these things up. It's, it's okay. Talk to your elders. Talk to your godly you know, mentors and go, what are your thoughts about this subject? And, we'll, you know, and we're there, and that's what we do. But I'm not going to say vote for whomever. Does that make sense? Oh, I wasn't supposed to ask them a question because they're not supposed to ask me a question. Got it. Thanks, Jesse. (laughs) Anybody else? Okay. Well, with that, because you kind of brought it up on the position paper that the elders, you know, put out, I'm going to jump into a few questions uh, regarding that. Um, For the line that reads, these instructions imply that believers who are walking in obedience to God, yet who disagree with each other, uh, politically, as a matter of conscience, should still strive to be at peace with each other. Would a good example of this matter of conscience dis- disagreement be in regards to two believers that disagree on specific candidates, yet both pl- both plan to vote pro-life? And would it be contrary example to a situation where two believers disagree because one wants to vote for a pro-abortion candidate, thus not walking in obedience and therefore not simply a matter of conscience, and the other pro-life voting believer is urging repentance on the matter. And I believe, Jason, uh, you were going to jump in and answer that first? Yes, yeah, so basically you, the person who wrote the question said, hey, here's, here's two scenarios of two types of disagreements that believers can have. Are these good examples um, to consider? And my answer is yes. Like, those are, those are good examples, both of them. Um, and there could be loads of other types of examples where you have people disagreeing on particular issues that are Christians. Um, and yes, in both situations, I would still say, when you're talking to somebody who is, claims to be a Christian, then yes, you still strive to be at peace with them, right? Romans 12, 18, as much as it depends on you, live at peace with all men. Um, You know, Romans 14, uh, Ephesians 4, striving for the unity of the spirit, those types of things. Yeah, you know, it's not not like we have a caveat in the Bible that says, unless you're talking about divisive political issues, uh, you know, 
then strive for peace with everybody, right? So, yeah, you know, if you have disagreement um, on matters of conscience or anything else, still strive for peace. Thank you. Anybody else? Okay. Um, if a church member insists, claims, that it, it's morally acceptable to vote for pro-abortion candidates over pro-life candidates, and if that member does not repent after a one-on-one -on -one conversation, Matthew 18, 15, and then still does not repent after a conversation with two or three witnesses, Matthew 18, 16, then can this issue be brought before the church for a church discipline matter mentioned in Matthew 18, 17? Okay, so I'm going to tackle this one. This is fun. Uh, so I wrote out my answer on this one. I'm just going to read it, and any of the elders that want to uh, chime in, feel free. If not, that's fine too. So my answer to this question is, guys, we are a pro-life church. We believe that you should vote for pro-life candidates. But when it comes to church discipline, bringing somebody before the church as the last step of church discipline and then removing them from fellowship, it means that we believe that their life is showing that their profession of faith is no longer credible. So am I willing to say that if someone votes for a pro-choice candidate, that that automatically makes their profession of faith not credible? My answer is maybe, but maybe not. It, it all depends on their rationale. So I would also ask, what if someone in our church votes for a candidate that is pro-life but is against God's word in another area? Would we place someone under church discipline for voting for a candidate that is okay with same-sex marriage or supportive of divorce for any reason or tolerant of racism? Why pick this particular issue, the pro-life issue, as worthy of church discipline but not the rest? You know, um, I, I personally couldn't vote for pro-choice candidates and have a, a good, con clean conscience about that. I would choose to vote third party or just write someone else in, like, you know, Glenn Dewar or whoever. Um, <laughs> so, so I would just write them in. But I also believe that we're always voting for flawed candidates, none of which will ever have, you know, policies or personal lives that perfectly align with God's word. So it's... You know, I just wouldn't conflate someone's vote with automatically being supportive of a candidate's every position. If I vote for somebody, it doesn't mean that I automatically agree with them on everything. Um, so, all that being said, I think the answer to the question about church discipline should be maybe, but maybe not. There are just too many potential variables in that particular question and scenario, um, we would have to consider the specifics of the situation when it arises. And this may be too controversial, but what strikes me in that question is, if you believe that's true, then you would not allow 70% of our African-American brothers and sisters to be a part of our church. Because the stats say 70% of evangelical African-Americans vote Democratic. So if that's your belief, then you would say 70% of these brothers and sisters could not be a part of my church. I have a problem with that. I agree with that statement for sure as an automatic, right? right. Um, I wouldn't automatically say that. But I would be willing to say, hey, let's, let's talk about why you vote that way. What's your rationale? What are your circumstances? What are your, what are your beliefs? What are your actions? 
and based off that response, could it be worthy of church discipline? Yeah, maybe, but also maybe not. Anything to add, brothers? Okay. Um, next question on the uh, paper there. Um, the last line under biblical balance is referring to the need for unity in the church and says, these instructions imply that believers who are walking in obedience to God, yet who disagree with each other politically as a matter of conscience should still strive to be at peace with each other. My question is, can a Christian be considered to be walking in obedience if they vote for a party or a candidate ascribing to a platform or views that are pro-choice or that affirm sinful lifestyles or gender identities that fall outside of God's perfect design? So my answer here is the same as I just gave to the previous question. Maybe it depends on your reason for voting that way and the circumstances around it. I would just want to know more about the rationale. I wouldn't automatically uh, say that somebody is, is uh, walking in, in some sort of sin if they choose to do that. But it, it could be that way for sure, but it might not be. All right. Um, next question. Is this included as simply a freedom of conscience issue, or does it need to be repented of, which seems to be clearly indicated in the first part of this document? So is this a freedom of conscience issue? I, I assume that what we're talking about is the, you know, the person who chooses to vote for somebody who's yeah. a pro-choice candidate or, or that type of thing. Yeah. Um, so here's the thing. If we find ourselves being supportive of any kind of sin, um, abortion, same-sex marriage, anything, if we find ourselves being supportive of that, then we should repent for sure. But the question is, am I supportive of a particular sin simply because I vote for a person or party who is? And the answer, again, like I've said all along, is maybe, right? It would totally depend on the person's rationale. That's why we have to keep in mind the portion of our elder paper that, uh, you know, talks about how our votes will always be for imperfect candidates, always be for flawed candidates and flawed parties. In that sense, our vote is always going to be, quote-unquote, siding with a, a sinner or a sinful person or a person who, you know, supports some sort of sinful uh, policy or, or potential thing that's against God's word. We should do our best to vote for a person or party that aligns with the principles of God's word, but no candidate will do that Perfectly. Thank you. Okay. Um, last question uh, pertaining to the white paper, um, position paper, sorry. Uh, I ask this because it is just, it just seems to me that this could provide a loophole for some to justify voting or for pro-choice or anti-family candidates. There are a growing number of theologically conservative church leaders and congregants who interpret voting your conscience, that's in quotes, um, as a free pass to vote for whoever you want and still be okay with God. I just don't, I just don't want this language to give the wrong impression or cause confusion. Can this last line be changed to bring more clarity? So I'm not exactly sure what, what this question meant when it said, I don't want this language. I'm not exactly sure what is meant by this language, but I'll do my best to answer the question anyways. Two thoughts. First of all, 
Um, people, all of us, candidates in, in, for political office you know, included, people are going to have to give an account to the Lord for their words. Um, us as, we as church leaders, we're going to have to give account to the Lord for our words. So if we say something like, vote your conscience, but what we really mean is, oh, I don't really want to offend anybody, so just vote for whoever you want and you'll still be good with God, then that leader is going to have to give an account to the Lord for deceptive communication. So God can be the, be the judge of what they really meant. I don't think we need to get in the business of doing that. We should only judge what they actually say and not try to assume ill motives about what they meant. Second, here's the second thing. Our documents that we wrote, this white paper included, we talked about this, um, Scott and Harry and Jeff, we talked about this before we wrote it. Our documents can always be changed and updated to provide better uh, clarity or, or more helpful content. We just need to keep in mind that our documents are always going to be imperfect because they're not holy and spirit-inspired scripture. We don't want to look at them that way. Uh, imperfect people will, people who are looking for loopholes will always be able to find loopholes, right? So personally, I'm not interested in trying to shore up every piece of human communication from people who are inevitably just going to look for loopholes. They'll always be able to find what they're looking for. Thank you. Anything to add, guys, on that yes. paper? Okay. Yes, Jeff? So I, I like the question because it, it, it's questions and things that we've dealt with before, um, and even questions that we deal with when you start peeling things back and peeling things back, and you start looking for how can we plug every potential loophole that someone is going to look at. Um, it's really it's a matter of the heart, right? It goes beyond just the action. What is behind the decisions that those people are making. And if people are going to look for loopholes, they're going to look for loopholes. They're going to, you know, they're going to try and, and manipulate things to support their opinion. And the bottom line is, don't, it's not opinion that we follow, it's God's word that we stand on. Um, so I, don't, I try not to get hung up on the, on, on the ifs and the whats and the, you know, it's focusing, it's being in prayer and, and Following, this is guidance. It's just guidance and our thoughts to help. So if somebody wants to try and manipulate it or use it to, to go, well, see, the, if I go this way, this way, this way, this way, I get to where I want to go, then you're, you're obviously not being in prayer and following the Holy Spirit to, to just vote the way that you wanted to vote in the first place. And I'll, I'll say this. When I, I've talked a little bit in our services and amongst our elders and with our congregation members about the issue of conscience. When I say things like, hey, you, you, need, you, know, you shouldn't go against your conscience, I'm not trying to, you guys, I hope you know me enough by now, I'm not trying to just avoid difficult conversation, right? I'm not afraid to tackle those things head on. So if you hear me say something about conscience, I would just ask that you, you don't assume that what I really mean is something else. Uh, you know, I, I hope you really mean like, hey, I, I actually want the people in our church to, you know, listen to their conscience and if the Holy Spirit is, if your conscience not free yet to do a certain thing, then don't go against it. Like, I believe that the scripture really te actually teaches that. So uh, that's what I mean by it. Thank you. Um, I'm going to jump into the next section. Uh, this was uh, Scott's sermon. Uh, what if a friend or family member is same-sex attracted? Sorry. Um, our first question is, uh, do you believe a practicing homosexual could be, born, could be a born-again Christian and have heard what Scripture says and continues in, in, a, in the homosexual lifestyle? If one has the Holy Spirit living in them, 
then why are they not convicted? Uh, Scott, I'm going to start with you. Okay, good question. And uh, I'll just start by saying it doesn't have to be same-sex attraction here. Any kind of sin that a person is habitually in and claims to follow Jesus and is unrepentant of that sin, can they be a Christian? So I'd rather frame it like that, okay? And I would say, first off, life begets life, okay? If there's life in their heart, you're going to see the fruit. James 2 says, saving faith, we show it through our works. Galatians 5 talks about the fruit of the Spirit. 2 Corinthians 7, there's a godly grief leading to repentance. Okay? All those tell me life begets life. I'd like to, just a, a couple of pastoral quotes, because this is a very tough pastoral situation. We get asked a lot. Uh, one from the 21st century, one from the 18th century. Tim Keller, talking about the fruit of the Spirit in a sermon, says, if you have the Holy Spirit in your life, there will be change in your life through the Spirit. But we're not saved by our fruit. <laughs> we're saved by faith. But we're never saved by fruitless faith. And here's the quote I like. He says, I'm not saying you're not a Christian if there's not fruit in your life. Because I think God has to say that. But you can't know you are a Christian if your life's not changing. Okay? I think that's a good quote. Then I'm going to go back to 18th century Jonathan Edwards. Okay? So bear with me a little English here. All this is not to say that a besetting sin like same-sex attraction, is a sign of being unregenerate. We are all weak in different ways, the regenerate as well as the unregenerate. That means saved, unsaved. While we may be more sinful before new birth, we generally feel more sinful after new birth. Though we sin less, the sin that remains, I like this one, throbs more painfully within the soul. Right? The real question for us, though, is not whether we sin or not, because we do and we will, all the guys sitting up here, including Jesse. The question is whether we are bothered by our sin or not. It is one thing to fall into a sin, even repeatedly. It's another thing to live in sin contentedly. Contentedly. I think that's where the issue is. Does anybody else want to add anything to that question? Okay. I'm going to move on to the second one. Um, how do we walk the line of grace and truth uh, with friends and family members and same-sex relationships? Um, for example, do you go on holiday family get-togethers? Uh, do you invite both partners uh, to your home or just the family member? Do you accept invitations to the home of a same-sex couple, couple uh, interacting with a friend who is in a, in a legal same-sex marriage uh, with my friend, uh, was raised uh, with Christian beliefs, um, but now is, gay, is a gay, in a gay marriage and doesn't care about the biblical perspective. Well, uh, what I tried to do in this and what we tried to do, I, we had a lot of questions about different scenarios, which comes from your own lives. And believe me, I, I understand that. Uh, I did not get into that last week because I did not have time to do that. And I wanted to set principles for us. So where is the line in the sand when it comes to marriage? Number two, what does it mean to have grace and truth? And number three, we've got to do it together. And, and, and so when I respond to this question, I say, if you have a kid and you want to know, you talk to our parents group who are living that out right now. I mean, I right now don't have that. They're the ones 
who are trying to live that out. Talk to one of us, and we'll tell you how to connect with them, okay? Real quick, Scott, tell them what you mean by the parents group. Oh, well, yeah, remember, there's a parents group, a care group, who have kids who are same-sex attracted, and they meet every other week to pray and talk and, and, and get, you know, and to share those kinds of struggles. That's what we are called to do as a church, to bear each other's burdens. So that, do, don't try to do it by yourself, okay? Do it with other people. Given all that, I just, I did some research, and I just, let me try to answer a few of those, okay? Uh, what can we do for group number one, uh, who, people in our church who are same-sex attracted and are fighting the good fight, living a celibate life, trying to honor God with their sexuality? Number one, make it easy to talk about in the church, okay? Make it easy, don't, don't act like it's some hidden sin that we shouldn't talk about. Number two, Honor singleness. Honor singleness. Um, don't unwittingly denigrate it in a good desire to build up the importance of marriage. It's not a zero-sum game. Okay? We can do both. We have a romance-infused culture, and it, to conceive of singleness sexually as good is nearly impossible. But what did Paul say right, about singleness? Number three, remember the church is a family. Number four, deal with biblical models of masculinity and femininity rather than cultural stereotypes. That's important as parents too, by the way. There's an awkwardness of a lot of these kids who struggle with this of not fitting into the stereotypes. Look at Jesus sometime, okay? In his culture of masculinity, he did not fit in. But that's another sermon. Number five, provide good pastoral support. One's sexuality is not their identity. Now, what's ironic about that is that's what our culture says, right? Hey, you are what your sex identity is. We better not do that in the church, right? Their identity is an image bearer of Christ, of God, and united Christ as a Christian. So they need to be able to share that deep struggle um, and that struggle, though, is not the defining issue of our relationship with them. Okay, that's, that was one. What about parents of same-sex attracted kids? Again, I would refer to that group, but just a couple things I found. Listen. Uh, it will help you remember. You need to remember that the child's coming out to you is not fundamentally about you. Um, are our reactions self-centered or are they rooted in love? Secondly, take time to deal with the shock. It's best not to react immediately. Hmm. Thanks for telling me. I'm sure it's been difficult for you and taking a lot of courage, but I'm going to need some time <laughs> to reflect on this hmm. and my thoughts and feelings. But know that I love you and I'll never stop loving you. That's what that group model to me. Number three, refrain from immediately negative reactions. Okay. I heard that a lot from the group. Four, ask questions about their experiences. Communicate that you're going to listen. You want to understand what they're, where they're coming from. And, and by the way, listening does not communicate that you are fine with same-sex relationships. Five, show unconditional love and acceptance. Um, six, 
talk briefly about your biblical convictions. But remember, I love this quote, the Bible never works very well as a hammer. <laughs> but it's our duty as parents to talk to our children about our deeply held convictions regarding their life. Um, but remember, their choice to whether or not to follow a biblical sexual ethic is not depending upon us, but their relationship to God. Okay, okay that's the second group. A third group, what about Christians who are affirming same-sex relationships, not a family member? I just would say one thing that helped me here was ask them this question if you can. If I could show you from the Bible that this isn't right, would you change what you were doing? Okay. They say they're a Christian and following Jesus, ask them, if I could show you in the Bible that this is not the way of Jesus, would you change? And that gets that point of issue right there. Okay. All right, what about non-Christians? How, how are we supposed to respond there? I got this from a focus on the family, by the way. See them as a person, not as a homosexual. Um, don't, here's, don't mistake active ideology with loving image bearers of God. There's a difference between attacking activist ideology and those who struggle so much with these issues and are hurting. So in our, in our culture, in the news and all that stuff, we're faced with this activist ideology, and then we take that and put it on our neighbor or our workmate. Don't do that. Resist that. Two, be patient and forgiving. Three, don't overfocus on homosexuality. The main issue is the gospel and their relationship to Jesus, not their sexuality. Now, of course, our relationship with God includes sexuality, but it isn't the totality of it. As one person said, start in Genesis 1, not Genesis 3. Okay? Start, and that's a reason, Genesis 1 came first, to understand, to help mm -hmm. them see that they are royalty and they have no idea how much they matter in God's eyes. Do you, and it says, there is so much in this issue of self-loathing, loathing and mental health issues, right? What better help can they get than how much God values them and loves them? quote from uh, one of my favorite authors in this area, Sam Alberry. He said, God came up with the idea of you in Genesis 1. And Genesis 1 tells me he was having a good day when he did. <laughs> Four, point your friend to Jesus, not necessarily to heterosexuality. Point him to Jesus first. Come to the person who came up with the idea of you in the first place, because that's the only place you will find out who you are and who you're supposed to be. Five, don't expect to know all the answers. Six, be open about your own needs and struggles. Hmm. Seven, give hope for something better. Eight, show them what a healthy same-sex relationship can be by being their friend. And nine, not last, pray, pray, pray. Thousands of men and women used to identify as gay and no longer do because of the power of Jesus in their life. Mm -hmm. Have that hope. Mm -hmm. What time do we got here? How much time do I have? Uh, Five, no, ten. For the rest of your... Yeah, I think... Uh, I, you've got 
five minutes. Well, sorry, ten minutes. Okay. Let me just. I, some people asked about uh, the the wedding thing. Okay, you get that asked. You know, should you go to a same-sex wedding? I got this from another friend of mine named Preston Sprinkle, who has a site called Faith, Sexuality, and Gender. And he's, he said there are seven things to consider, which I think are helpful. What'd I say? You just gave like 27 points. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> Give us all seven. Now I feel bad. I'm sorry. I'm Harsh words. Harsh words. Harsh yeah, words. I'm love, sorry. Jason. Number one, first. <laughs> There are not any clear prohibitions against attending a same-sex wedding. Second, whatever you decide, be consistent in your convictions. If you will, and it's okay if you decide out of your convictions not to go to a same-sex wedding, but should you go to a wedding between a believer and unbeliever then? Or between a couple who's living together before they get married? Just be, cons be consistent. Third, thank you. What message would you, what, this is, a, this is a good one right here. What message would your attendance send to the couple getting married? For some, it might convey unqualified approval of their same-sex marriage. Then you shouldn't go. For others, they might think they already know you don't affirm same-sex marriage, and your attendance communicates love. Maybe you should go to that one. Okay. Uh, fourth, don't worry about your reputation. Fifth, if your, if your relationship with the same-sex couple depends on whether you'll attend the wedding ceremony, then it might be a fragile, inauthentic relationship in the first place. Mm. If they're going to hold that over you, mm. knowing that's a conviction you have, you've got to ask, okay, what kind of friendship is this? Mm. Um, sixth, consider the long-term effects that attending or not attending a wedding will have on your relationship with the one getting married. And seventh, and most importantly, follow your convictions. And, and what he said here was, it's always good when you have these kinds of debates in your own self. Cross-check them, your conscience, with godly people around you. Right? Again, do it together. Okay, I'm done. If you got those 37, well, they'll be, that'll be on the midterm, so just so you know. <laughs> so I have to ask, does anybody else have I got something two to points. add? Two points. <laughs> two. Two. Two more points. Two points. We're up to 40. One is it really depends on your relationship with that person. Right? If it's your neighbor that you talk to like once a week, once a month, okay, that's different than, you know, that family member. Think about it through that way. Um, and then how I apply it, because I'm no theologian like, you know, my colleagues over here. Ooh, I use the word colleague. Look at that. I'm not really their colleague. Anyway, you know, how we handle similar situations, in other, you know, with other different sins. Um, you know, I had a next door neighbor, they were living together unmarried at the same time the house across the street had a same set, you know, a lesbian couple. Did I treat them differently? They were both living in sin. No, I treated them both with dignity and respect, though I didn't agree with their lifestyle. Um, but you think about things like drunkenness, anger, other sins that your family deals with. This is just one that's easy to see in a very hot topic today. Again, you don't have to agree with the lifestyle to love people and to care for people, and they know where you stand. The people that I work with know that I'm a Christian person. Our boss, he likes, you know, what, 
he, he doesn't necessarily live a Christian lifestyle, but every time we have an event and he brings alcohol in, he brings me a bottle of water or, or an iced tea or something. Why? Because he knows where I stand. Thank you. Jay? The only other thought on this that I think I would add, maybe, and Scott, you might have said this and I might have just missed it, but like, I, I think whether or not the person claims to be a Christian is a huge part of that. And you, you interact differently with somebody who claims to know Christ versus somebody who doesn't. Um, and, uh, you know, everything else kind of has already been said. We have to decide what does participation in any event, a wedding, a dinner out, a family holiday, what does that mean? Does that mean we approve of their relationship or not? As Christians, we have a responsibility to not approve of those of same-sex relationships, so we shouldn't take action that do that. Um, but if our participation in that event doesn't equate to approval, then, you know, I think we have the freedom to do that if, we, if our conscience is free to do so. The only other aspect I would say on top of all of this is parents who have kids, and you have to decide, are you going to take your kids to these family get-togethers? Are you going to take your kids to a wedding? Or what happens if a same-sex couple wants to show up at a family event, but your kids are planning on being there? You know, those are the types of things where, at a high level, obviously, parents have responsibility for raising their kids, protecting them the best that we can, exposing and explaining them to, you know, sinful things in a way that is kind of at the appropriate time when they're ready. Um, my, my thought on that really is if, if you have to make decisions about, like, what are you going to do with your children, um, I would say just don't let the world force your hand. Moms and dads, God has given you the responsibility of raising your kids. You are going to, make, you need to make that decision and not just capitulate to worldly principles or worldly pressures. But if you really need to talk that through and think that through, I do think that that care group uh, with families who have had to walk through this and parents who have had to walk through it, they are the right people to talk to. Thank you. Um, we have four more minutes. So, Scott, is there a specific question out of that that we want to jump to, or think, do you want me to pick one? No, I think we should go to the question, wait, I got to look at that, uh, number seven. Number seven, yeah. great question. Okay. Um, if someone is same-sex attracted but celibate, does this statement mean that the person is not sinning because they are not acting upon it? How do Matthew 5, 21 through 28, Mark 7, and Romans 7 apply. Okay, I, want, I picked that one because I think it's a good example in a topic that we're talking about of a difference between these different categories, okay? So, because I think, yeah. So, the question of the line in the sand for same-sex issues, right, is God's design of marriage, one man, one woman. Okay, that's the line in the sand. Okay. This is a subcategory question. And, if you, and basically, let's get in this question. If a person has a same-sex attraction, but they are trying to honor God, live a celibate life, and not act on it as a Christian, is that same-sex attraction itself a sin? Is the temptation a sin? Okay. I wanted to point that out, that if you go and research that from the people that write on this topic, you will find good men and women on both sides of that question, okay? Just want you to know that. Good men and women on both sides. So, I, and I, I'm still working through it myself, okay? Jason and I have had some discussions as elders and what will we say, but I'm still working through that. I think you have to be very fine with your uh, definitions 
and your vocabulary. You want to go first with that one? Just sure. Yeah. So I, when we're talking about same-sex attraction versus same-sex activity. Yes. Okay. Um, so I would just say we're, you know, when we're talking about sin, we have to remember that there is kind of um, delineations that need to be made. There are there is sin that is in the world, and then there are transgressions, right? Action, transgressions, actions that we take to cross the line, willing choices and activities that we do. That's a transgression. And then there is sin that's in the world that's, you know, the anti-godness, the brokenness that's in the world. It's like a disease that affects all of us, uh, right? So we have to discern between sin and transgressions. So I think we would all agree on this panel that if somebody acts in a homosexual manner or any sort of sexual activity that's outside the bounds of marriage, then that is a transgression, it's sin, and it's wrong, right? Um, Same-sex attraction, uh, I would say it is still sinful in the sense of it has, it wouldn't exist in this world had the fall not happened. Right? In that sense, it's a result of sin being in the world. Um, if somebody has that temptation to act in a same-sex um, you know, um, immorality, that's, that's, and again, whether it's same-sex or, or you know, heterosexual you know, sexual activity, doesn't really matter. It, tempta- being tempted, feeling a temptation, it, it only happens because sin is in the world, but you're not sinning if you experience a temptation. Here's the difference, and I just want to bring Scripture to bear on this. Galatians chapter 5, I can't remember the exact verse. I think it's maybe verse 18. It says very, very clearly that we should put to death the misdeeds of the flesh and their desires. Okay, so as Christians, with the Holy Spirit living in us, as part of pursuing that Galatians 5 fruit of the Spirit, life, we should be not only putting to death the misdeeds of the flesh, but also asking the Lord to put to death within us the desires that are there as well. So I think as a Christian, we would hope to encourage and see from people that they are not just like, what was the word you used from John, Jonathan Edwards earlier, was it? Uh, contentedness in mm-hmm. our sin, uh, that we can, we can yes. become contented. in. Our, like if, if, a, if a person who's living in sexual immorality is just contented that way, and, you know, then... That's a really big problem. We should be willing to want to put to death the desires of the flesh, mm-hmm. uh, including same-sex attraction. So we live in a culture that's just going to say, oh, you know, I, that's just the way I am. No need to fight this. As long as I live celibate, then I'm not going against God, but my desires are fine. And I would say, no, those are desires need to be put to death as well, um, and that you should be acting toward that. Um, but I think that helps us understand that some of our activity is sinful transgression. Other, other is you know, the fact that we just live in a sinful world where temptation and, and sinful desires are just going to be there. Mm. So I don't know if that, clear, if that brings clarity to it or not. But yeah. I'll just be quick because I know we're running late. You know, I, I look at other things that we deal with, whether it's drunkenness, whether it's anger, you know, whether it's, you know, pornography. Sometimes it gets to the point, you have to address it. And, and as Jason said, right, so if you're not, if you're not trying to kill that desire, if you know, you, you know, we have recovering alcoholics. Mm-hmm. Alcoholism, right? It, 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 it's something they deal with. They go get counseling. 
So this may be a point where, hey, you know, you have this same-sex attraction. If you're just going to sit there and try and take care of it yourself, right, that goes back to Colossians 2, right? I'm going to create all these rules so that I stop myself. Well, now, God is a God of change. God is a God of transformation. When we accept Jesus Christ, he'd be transforming us from the inside. And I think that's when that desire, that temptation, right, that, it's that change that, that should be taking place. So you can't just sit there and think that it's just going to be okay. And I think that's how I, I would answer that. I, I just wanted to quote with one quote, end with another quote uh, from, from John Piper. You may have heard of him. He said, when he talked about this issue, in other words, although same-sex attraction is a disordered desire, which is what um, Jason was trying to explain, owing to, I'm sorry, was explaining, <laughs> sorry. I'm, no, I did not, I was not trying to get him back. I was, Jason, we're supposed to be modeling, loving, relate. okay, okay. Okay. Same-sex attraction is a disordered desire owing to the fall and thus rooted in sin and broken by sin. Nevertheless, experiencing same-sex attraction is not in itself an act of sinning. I think that's what I would want to make sure we understand. Thank you, guys. Anything else to add? Because very important question. So, okay, so we're going to jump into the next and last section here, uh, most recently, Jason's uh, sermon, so, which talked about uh, should a woman be a pastor? And the first question is, why would first Timothy, why would first Timothy two thirteen apply only to the church and not also the workplace and government, etc.? All right, so uh, I'll answer that question directly. I'll just say this first of all, Glenn and Scott, thank you for answering as many questions as you could. You guys, we had probably what Glenn ten or twelve other questions regarding your sermon that we didn't have time to cover, yeah. and maybe Scott six or seven others. So yeah. we know that we didn't get to every question. Um, we did our best. Um, so I'll answer my questions as fast as I can. Why would 1 Timothy 2.13 apply? Again, 1 Timothy 2.13 is the verse that says, you know, that uh, Paul forbids a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Uh, so why would that apply in the church and not also in the workplace or government? Here's why. If you read on um, to chapter 3 of 1 Timothy, Paul says that the thing that he's um, telling Timothy, the things he's telling Timothy are specifically for the church. In chapter 3, verse 14, he says, I am writing these things to you so that, here's verse 15, if I delay, Paul says, if I, you know, if I delay in coming to you, um, that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So that's the most direct answer um, to this question. I would also say that we should consider other things in Scripture, like where God called other women to places of leadership in the workplace, like Lydia, the seller of purple goods in the book of Acts, or the Proverbs 31 woman um, doing work. Uh, I would also say that we should consider women in government that we see in the scripture, such as God raising up Esther to become queen or Deborah to become judge in Israel. So uh, just some, some thoughts there on that one. Good. Anybody else? Okay. Um, Next question, what is UBC's view on women in church staff roles that aren't engaged in direct shepherding or flock um, over men, uh, youth ministry, communication, organizational rules, uh, counseling? Yeah. yeah. So our view on that is that we welcome it. Uh, we love that Bobby Shell is our children's ministry director. We love that Jamie Vance is on staff with our student ministry. 
Um, in those cases, they're not teaching or having authority over men, and that is 100% acceptable. Uh, the same thing applies to other staff roles that don't involve the teaching of men or providing spiritual authority in the church. I will say uh, counseling is kind of tricky. I can see how a case could be made that biblical counseling should be done with the same gender only um, when it's done in the church. I'll just say this on a personal note. During seasons when I have needed to go see a counselor myself, I have personally seen both a male or a female counselor. Both of uh, those were in contexts that were outside of our local church, so they had no authority over me in that way, and my conscience was free in those areas. Anybody else to add to that one? Okay, I'm going to move on to number three. Uh, where or what is the distinction between the local church and the church, churches, academic, nonprofit groups, etc., in regards to women ministry? Can academic institutions funded and supported by local churches be considered uh, the local church or branch of the local church? Jay? Okay, so I'll answer this second question first. The second question is, you know, can academic institutions funded and supported by local churches be considered the local church or a branch of it? I want to answer that question first. And the answer is not usually, all right? If, if our church gives money to a Christian university or to a Christian school, that, you know, does not make that school or university, it doesn't make it a local church. They shouldn't be considered a local church simply because churches have given them money just like churches give money to grocery stores and utility companies and all sorts of other entities, that doesn't make them a church, right? So uh, perhaps, here's, here's why I say you, not usually, here's why, because Glenn and others brought this up, I think it's a good point. There, um, perhaps there's a Christian school or a nonprofit organization that is considered a ministry of a local church, right? It's run by that church, it's overseen by that church, that would mean that the local church governs it. And in that case, I could see how a, a school or a nonprofit could be considered to be under the auspices of a local church. And when that is the case, the policies of the local church, even those including you know, women in leadership, um, they would need to be applied uh, in, that, in that school or in that uh, nonprofit organization if it's a subset of the church. Good. Jeff, were you going to add something? Okay, you got your mic up, so I had to ask. All right, I'm gonna. Uh, number four, because because the Timothy passage says husband, does that mean that the elder or pastor has to be married? What about a widower? All right, another great question, and um, one that we've talked about as elders, and not just as we've considered elders, but also as we've considered deacons, because the same qualification is there for deacons as well in 1 Timothy 3. So here's my answer. Um, within complementarianism, there are different views on whether or not a man should be married or at least have been married in order to serve as an elder. One camp says that it appears that Paul is drawing a correlation between leading um, well in his own family in order to lead well in God's family. So thus you have these qualifications in 1 Timothy that say he must be the husband of one wife or a man who manages his household well or keeps his children in order, essentially. The other camp says things like, well, neither Jesus nor Paul were married, so surely they would have been allowed to be elders in local churches. Uh, plus, Paul seems to refer to singleness as a gift in 1 Corinthians 7, and Jesus speaks highly of singleness in Matthew chapter 19. So, considering all of that, 
our conclusion here at UBC is that if a man is married, if, then, and, and he's up as a candidate for elder or deacon, then he should be faithful to his one wife, and he should be leading his family well, if he's married. Thank you. Looks like nobody else on that one. So we got one more question in this category, and it's a pretty easy one. We left a softball one for you for you oh, on sure, this one, thanks. Jay. Um, what does it mean in 1 Timothy 2.12 for women to be quiet in the church? <laughs> my wife and my mother-in-law are sitting in the room. <laughs> so, Scott, you want to answer this one? Uh, <laughs> no, I think you got that one. All right, I got my answer written out for this. I'll just read it. Um, so we must keep in mind that Paul reiterates a similar point um, about the silence of women in the church. He, re he reiterates that in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 34 and 35. But in 1 Timothy 2 and in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul is instructing female quietness, meaning that they not assert themselves over the male headship in the home or in the church that God has ordained. So we need not interpret this as a command for women to remain absolutely silenced at all times in our church services or our church meetings. That would go against other passages in the New Testament where, you know, Paul tells us to, where the Holy Spirit leading Paul tells us to sing, make melody to the Lord. You have to make noise for that, right? Uh, we also, women are also um, given instruction on how to pray and how to prophesy in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. So there you have women who are not remaining silent in the church. So, uh, Silence or quietness, you know, it's being commended here in reference to teaching and authority. So being quiet means that she shouldn't teach men. She shouldn't assert a spiritual authority over them, specifically in the church. I, I, I do have one add on that. <laughs> and my one add is if, if we aspired to that, just women totally being quiet, we would not have had Alethea, Kelsey, and Melissa do an amazing job this morning in worship. Yes. So yes. that was just my plug for the worship team. Yeah. Good point. Right on. Anybody else? Harry? Okay. Um, I think that concludes our questions for the evening. So um, I just wanted to add and wanted to say thank you to our elders and, and Glenn up here, our panel, uh, for taking the time to be able to, you know, ask and to answer some of the, the questions that were sent in. So thank you guys so much. Can we give them a round of applause, please? <clears throat> and uh, to close our night, I'm going to ask Jeff, will you uh, close us out in prayer, please? Thank you. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for, uh, for being with us. Lord, we thank you for your word that we can stand on. Lord, you created this world perfectly. And Lord, we messed it up. But you knew that we were going to mess it up, and we thank you for, for sending Jesus Christ. And we thank you for these men and women that came this evening and the, uh, and the heart that they have to, to worship and to glorify you in their lives and through some of these very difficult uh, things that we're dealing with in modern society. They, uh, they want to be standing on the truth of your word 
yet also full of grace and love for their, for their fellow man and women. Uh, Lord, give us all wisdom on how to react to our neighbors, on how to react to our friends, on how to react to our family, on how to show love and kindness. Strengthen us through this time. Continue to, to be with the, the men on this stage. Give us wisdom to lead and to shepherd and to care for and to teach and to be standing on the truth of your word, but also doing it in a, in a manner of love. I pray that you'll be with us as, uh, as we go from this place. Be with the, the parents that are here and the ones that, that weren't able to make it as they raise their children in a society that grows further and further away from you. Give them strength. Give them wisdom. Give them courage to, to disciple and mentor their children to know the truth and to be able to handle these tough questions. I pray that you'll raise up men and women to, to help mentor and grow other men and women to support them. We do pray for this care group that we know of, and Lord, if there's others that you're going to raise up, that you'll just give us wisdom on those, that you'll strengthen us, that you'll lead us, that you'll give us unity, and continue to pour out your love and blessings on this church. In Jesus' name.